Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. What I have on my mind today has changed a few times. I was thinking about talking about the uh, first philosophical notion that I ever had, which has to do with the perception of time. I think that's going to have to come possibly tomorrow when I record it. Today, what's been on my mind is a very specific barrier to Christian belief. I've talked very recently, this was in my last podcast, about the fact that I have more confident belief in Christianity now than I did years ago. And the specific reason for that is based around the evidence. Most specifically, the evidence that Jesus, Christ himself, lived, died, and resurrected, including the various miracles and so on. And I myself can hear the inner critic, such as today, saying back, okay, that's all well and good. But when it comes right down to it, this is just testimony passed along, passed along, passed along from one person to the next, to the next, to the next. If that's all you have, or in my case, if that's all I have, what am I lacking? Well, I am lacking my own experience. I don't just want it to be the testimony of somebody else. I want it to be my own. I want to experience a miracle or experience the fulfilling of some prophecy or something like that. Something that makes God rather undeniable. And, well, that's not just something that I can sympathize a great deal with. That's something that I often share. It's a thought that certainly goes through my own mind. And the question is, how do we square with that? Is it possible to believe if all you really have is second-hand testimony? Never your own. Never a specific, visceral, undeniable experience of God, of the miraculous. Of that which cannot be explained by mere biology or science or physics. And what this really boils down to is the notion that is often carried through a lot of modern Christianity, institutionalized Christianity, that essentially tells us that God cares about every single one of us, right? If God care, and if that's true, if God cares about every single one of us, then surely he would pay enough attention to you, me, as an individual and give us some undeniable proof, some sign, some miracle, perhaps. And I would look at that philosophically and ask the question that it doesn't answer, but rather begs. Where did you get this notion that God is obliged to care about you, or God has promised to care about you individually? 
that God loves his creation, that God will do good all the time. Those things, I think, are fairly well-founded on Scripture. But that God will care about you individually? Where do we get this notion? See, once again, as I have argued several times already in this podcast, I think that the best predictor of the behavior of God, or the best indication of the behavior of God, can be found in Jesus. Now, if we take that as our example, if we take the very Son of God as our example, did he care about everybody? The fact that he did good to everybody, I think, is undeniable if you understand good. He loves everyone. I define love as knowing and acting towards the good to the best of your ability. Now that, as far as I can see in the scriptures, in the Gospels, Jesus did that to the nth degree, not just to his disciples, but to people like the Pharisees that he clearly didn't get along with very well. Why? Because... In their arrogance, he tried to wake them up. He tried to deliver them some fairly stern words as smelling salts to wake them up out of their arrogance. I think that that is a very good thing to do to somebody who is that arrogant and proud. But the question that we're asking is not, did Jesus, does God love and do good towards the world in general, towards his creation? We're asking the question, does God care about his creation? Now, if we ask that question of Jesus in his relationships with pretty much everyone, you can see fairly clearly that, yes, he did care about quite a number of people, but it seems to be pretty exclusively those he was close to. Right? When he was close to his disciples, he, well... Not just his disciples, but even the people who would sit down and take the time to listen to him for a little while. They ran out of food. What did he do? He produced massive amounts of food to such an extent that there were something like, I believe it was 14 baskets of leftover food after feeding more than 5,000 people. That's caring, if you want to put it that way. And there are a number of other things, for example, him warning Peter that he was going to deny him three times before he did it almost setting him up ahead of time to know that he could approach him, that is Jesus, later on and seek retribution for what he had done. I would say that's very caring. But if you look towards the people that didn't really want to have anything to do with Jesus, not only did it seem like he didn't care, he was almost flippant. What do I mean? Anyone who causes one of these little ones to fall, to stumble rather, it would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and be cast into the sea. Or the Pharisees, they're a brood of vipers, they're hypocrites. They lead people towards destruction while they walk towards destruction themselves. These are things that Jesus specifically said about to and about the Pharisees. And if he cared about them the way that we generally expect caring to work, would he not do everything in his power to make sure that never happened? Right? That's what we generally mean by caring people today. It's why we don't let neuroticism, while it it sounds like it's a word that has a negative connotation, it's actually a very good attribute used the right way, 
You don't let neuroticism have its head. Neuroticism, by the way, simply means having a visceral, a visceral reaction to negative stimuli. And it is a personality attribute according to the Big Five personality test. A very good attribute, especially if you're raising infants, right? They're going towards the electrical socket. Ah, stop them! That's a good thing for us to have a reaction to. But if you allow neuroticism to have its head, and you try to prevent every kind of pain, then what you have really done is cut people off from part of life that may even teach them some of the most important lessons they will learn. And I'll probably go into that in greater detail in my next podcast. But Anyway, for now, what I'm pointing out is that those who were distant from Jesus didn't seem to really have his care, so to speak. He was perfectly fine with them going their own way, even if it meant to their ultimate destruction. If they were heading towards their destruction, he didn't step in and try to make sure that they stopped. In my opinion, he did everything that he could to wake them up from the path to their destruction. He warned them. He told them to their faces that they were going in the wrong direction, that they were hypocrites, that they were pipers, and that sort of thing. But he didn't step in, almost physically stopping them from going in that direction. As far as I can see, he didn't do that to anybody. He left it up to their own free will. He gave them the information that they needed so that if they were to choose it of their own, by their own conscience, by their own free will, they would walk away from the wrong path. But if they did not do it, he wasn't going to step in and stop them. So, oh, and then also I wanted to point out that even God the Father doesn't seem to have that kind of closeness with people who, again, don't seem to have anything to do with him. When we see individuals in the Old and New Testament alike who are delivered a message from God in some way via an angel or what have you, save for specific instances like Saul, later known as Paul, we see the introduction sounding something like this. Your good deeds, delivered usually by an angel again, your good deeds, your love, your generosity, your charity, has gotten the attention of God, your prayers have gotten the attention of God, and you have great favor in the Lord. In other words, it had something to do with their religious or moral, kind, benevolent behavior that earned them attention from God, and then an angel comes and delivers them some sort of message. Now, give me your best estimation. How many people do you think got that kind of behavior in all of world history from God? Happens a good handful of times throughout the entirety of Scripture, which takes place over the course of several thousand years. What about all the rest of the people? Thousands and thousands, millions of people. Did they ever get that kind of a sign? And I'm not saying that they that nobody else got any sign. 
But the favor of God usually comes with the introduction, your lifestyle, your choices, your actions have gotten God's attention. And then in that very act, they're getting a pretty strong sign that God's really out there and God, in one sense, cares about them. In other words, is close to them, has his eye on them. But those individual people, not just anyone or everyone. So, back to the main question. Is God obliged to care about me or about you so much that he's obliged to give you some undeniable sign of his existence? I can't see any reason why. Does God have a moral obligation to deliver you a sign beyond all reasonable doubt? That he is not only out there, but cares about you? Once again, it doesn't seem as if he is obliged to care or does care about just anyone or everyone. Would we consider that a requirement in our own lives? Should we care about everyone we come across? Some people think that we should, and pay close attention to the people who make who state that kind of a line. Watch their lives. Over the course of time, either they give up, or they spend themselves to the bone, caring about, about people who do not care about them back, will just leech and siphon off of their, quote, generosity until they have nothing left. They will be used and used and used until there is nothing left of them. That's what happens with people who care about everyone. And you could say, oh, but God has infinite resources and he can care about everyone and never run out. True. However, if God really loves, that is, acts, knows and acts towards the good of everyone, is it good for people to be cared about in that sense? I find the answer quite easy. No. Charity, for example, is one of the most difficult things to do when it comes to benevolence in general. Why? Because in many cases, if you give resources to somebody who is simply being lazy, and yeah, they might have a legitimate need for resources, obviously, because if they haven't been working, they probably don't have enough income to provide for themselves, so they come seeking benevolence. But if they haven't developed the character to be other than slothful, and you give them those resources because you care so much, with no requirement, no obligation, no rules to follow on their part, in order to essentially earn the ongoing charity, then all they're really going to do is take the money, use it to buy their next meal or two, and then come back for more money. And as a result of that, if they have not had any incentive to change their lifestyle, they become a leech, they become a drain on your benevolence and on your charity. Unless there is some incentive to change, caring about somebody does the exact opposite. 
with those who do not desire to change. Why? Because if you give them resources without the change or even the request or demand for change, what is their incentive to change? They're getting the goods. They're getting what they want. So no, for God to care about everybody in that sense is not going to be to their good. Every charity worker who has actually done a good job of being benevolent to the community knows that truth. So why should God give you or me individually a sign? Jesus said this when he was telling the story of Lazarus and the rich man. If the law and the prophets were not sufficient, even a man rising from the dead would not be sufficient for them to believe. He's making a very clear statement on this line. In other words, the proof of Christianity lay in a very different department than spiritual evidence, miracles, the supernatural occurring. It stands on its own merits. The veracity of its moral, moral teachings, the truths of its historical accounts. If Jesus were talking to us today and making the same kind of statement, not that I'm going to try to be so pretentious as to say what Jesus would say, but I could try to update those words saying, if the historical, logical, and moral evidence of Christianity is not enough to prove, not enough to convince people that it is accurate, that it is the real thing, then seeing some fulfillment of a prophecy, or some miracle of healing, or some bright light in the sky, is not going to convince them. What is really the problem is not that we haven't seen some miracle. The problem is on our own hearts. 